We're continuing on in a series about uh, pursuing shalom and seeing shalom uh, in our lives and opening ourselves up to it. So we'll be continuing on uh, in that today. And as we get ready to go to the scriptures, if you would join me in prayer, that would be wonderful. Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm sure I'm not the only one, uh, but when you have a pretty powerful experience, it's hard not to talk about it, right? If you go on a vacation that's just wonderful and everything seems to align and it's exactly what you want, or maybe you go to a destination that's just overwhelming and it's more than what you thought it to be, or if you go on a mission trip or, 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 uh, or you get married or whatever the case might be, like we have these moments in our lives where we have these experiences and those experiences begin to form us and shape us and they seem to dominate all of our conversation for at least some portion of time. And I'll just be completely honest with you that the sabbatical this past summer, <clears throat> excuse me, was that for us. And so I don't know what the moratorium is on, like how long I can talk about it before I uh, annoy you. Uh, hopefully today is not that day. So part of uh, the goal that we had with the sabbatical was to slow down enough to be present to God's renewal of all things right? It, it was to be quiet enough and still enough to hear uh, things that normally I don't hear, to, to see things that normally I pass by simply because of the busyness of life. And what came out of this experience was, was getting present to, to, to the wholeness of things, to shalom. This is why we're doing this series. It's because it's what's What's been most impressed upon me is this idea of shalom, or is the way that we're talking about this Hebrew word over the last couple of weeks is the way that it's supposed to be. That there's this, there's this fundamental part of the world that, that it's there if we can attend to it. The, the world is as it's supposed to be, like if we can dive underneath all of the things, we can see it. And we can attend to it in such a way that our soul exhales and said, yes. Yes, this is it. This this is the world that it's supposed to be. And, and, And there were times over the summer where we definitely got to attend to that. I I mentioned it briefly, uh, on the very first Sunday that we were back and we were giving a little bit of a review, but one of the things that Sarah and I did while we were in Italy was we went to a monastery, a monastery that had been one of the first monasteries that Francis of Assisi had built outside of Assisi, so it was built in the 1200s. And he built it, and then it had fallen into disrepair after a while. And in the 1970s, a father asked permission to take over the monastery, and he turned it into, into a place, a rehab clinic of sorts. So people whose lives had fallen apart because of drug and alcohol addiction would go there to get help. And, and what they would do is they would, they would actually work the monastery in the fields. They acquired land all around the surrounding area, and they'd grow vegetables, and they'd grow vine, uh, uh, grapes, and they'd make wake wine, which is just kind of this like, it's for addicts to recover, and yet they're making wine and champagne and all, they do all of this, and then they started running this restaurant, and just this incredible experience, and so Sarah and I went there one night and had 
the best meal, and I'm not just meaning the best meal in terms of the taste, although it was that, but the best meal in terms of the holistic experience, this experience where you have all of these things coming together, this place where people's lives are being restored at the same time as they care for the world around them such that they produce this wonderful food and they make these meals and, and give it to you with such attention that we would sit there in quiet and just delight at what we were experiencing, delight at the food, delight at the surroundings, delight at the way that the people, the people cared for us as we were eating. And, and I told you before, we would speak in hushed tones because it felt like we were in the midst of something holy. And we'd sit there and just marvel at what we were experiencing and we'd had this Yes, this, this is the way that it's supposed to be. And, or when I took Luke backpacking in Yellowstone and we are laying in our tent at night. We're laying up on this bluff and we're overlooking this mountain river valley. And then across the river valley are these massive cliffs that shadowed over top of us. We'd read our Bibles together and we'd pray together and we'd tell stories and we'd laugh. I'd watch my son's eyes dance with excitement and wonder at what we were discovering. My soul would just exhale, yes, this is the way that it's supposed to be. Now, I will admit, and I'll be the first to admit it, that what we experienced this summer was not real. It was not real life. It was a fantasy and there's a degree to which it's easy to be present to this, this shalom, this, this, this way that it's supposed to be when we're given the gift of space and you're given the gift of time and you're given the gift of resources. I mean, we were literally given the gift of being encouraged to let our souls exhale. But what it, even though it's a fairy tale and even though we had a, a slice of something that wasn't necessarily real life, I came to believe that, yes, shalom actually is present all around us. Thomas Merton, the contemplative, has this great quote where he says, There is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dimmed light, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness. Now, I had to look up the word fecundity, had no idea what it meant, uh, and it simply means the ability to produce something new. So Merton's idea is that within everything you see, there is this spark that reflects the creator. God's fingerprints are all over creation, and because of that, within the things that God created, there is this hidden wholeness. And so for us, our fairy tale summer, it was easy to see this hidden wholeness. It was, we were given the space to explore, to play the hide-and-seek game, if you will. And, but I understand in the busyness of our lives with all the duties that we have to attend to, all the obligations that we have, searching for that hidden wholeness and seeking it out is sometimes difficult. And the temptation then, I think, is for us to, to forget that, that we are tasked with finding that hidden wholeness and to be present to God's shalom in the world. The temptation to say, yeah, 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 we can do that. We can, we can search for that hidden wholeness when we have vacations or we can search for it if we're ever given the gift of sabbatical. But, but it's not something that we can really pursue in our real life. Either the temptation is to do that, or the temptation is to begin to believe in this idea that everything is so broken and beyond repair that wholeness isn't something that's hidden. It's just something that doesn't exist. 
And we get tempted to look out at creation and say, okay, yeah, I see fires and I see earthquakes and I see hurricanes. You can't tell me that there's a hidden wholeness to all of that because that just looks like devastation and destruction without purpose. That looks like a world that is broken and that is as not as it should be. And there's some truth to that. But if we focus in on that, I think we miss out on the fecundity, this ability that the creation has to produce something new. So we see a fire that ravages through a wilderness. And if you show up right after the fire, you see the smoldering ashes and you see the trees that are charred. You don't see green, you see brown, gray, black. But go back in five years and tell me what you see. You go back in 10, and you begin to see something new. You begin to see a forest sprouting up. You begin to see that, that, there, that the, there's a wholeness that's still there. There's life that's still possible. There's something new that's being birthed where once we thought there was only death. There is a fecundity. There is a hidden wholeness to that. Okay, okay, well, that's easy to see for creation, but what about human beings? Like, human beings, like, let's just be honest about it. When you talk about a hidden hidden wholeness within human beings, (laughs) it's really, really hidden, right? And then we have to ask ourselves, well, what's that hidden wholeness hidden behind? We begin to see that it's hidden behind the walls that we we ourselves erect. Yeah, it's hidden behind some brokenness and all of that, but but even the brokenness, let's get behind that. Let's look, where's that coming from? What's going on there? And what we see is that behind these walls that we erect, there's both this fear, this fear that, I think there's two kinds of fears. There's one, there's this fear that we don't have any inner light whatsoever. And so we erect walls so people can't see that. Can't see that there's no hidden light, that there's only darkness within us. And we hide, we build up these walls and we hide that. And we're like, I am not going to let anybody see the inner core of who I am lest they find out just how bad I am, just how broken I am, just how, how far I could go. Or, or we believe that there's this, this, there is like this inner light, this inner goodness. There's this, there's this bit that's still whole within us, but we're afraid that the world is going to beat us out of it. The world's going to blow out that little bit of light, so we erect a wall around it to protect it. I'm not going to let the world steal this from me. I am not going to let anybody take this from me. I am not going to let this part of me get hurt And we erect the walls, and by erecting these walls around whatever it is on the inside, (laughs) any chance of wholeness is divided up now. Our inner life becomes segmented. We have different parts of who we are unconnected from the other parts because there's these walls. Now, this sounds pretty new new agey and maybe pop psychology and all of this, but I think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 14. Paul writes this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. 
For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my spiritual nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject, that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am always a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Paul, I think, I mean, it's confusing. It's a bit confusing with the I do's and I do not want to do's and all of these sorts of stuff, but Paul is really clearly articulating the human condition. And not only that, I think he's getting at this idea of how divided our lives are. The good I want to do, I don't do. Right? There's a division between my desires that I want and the things that I do. Or the evil I don't want to do, that is in fact what I do. Again, there's this division, there's this segmenting of our lives, there's these parts of us based on like, what we want internally, what we're desiring, what we hope, and then the things that we don't want to do. Like, it's our actions and our desires are separate. Our hopes and our dreams and versus what becomes is separate. Like there's this divided life that we find ourselves in. Now, I'll describe myself, but I don't think I'm alone in this. When I am quiet, when I'm still, when, I, when I'm able to, to step back from obligations and duties and just the tasks of this world, when I get to that place where I'm just still, often I can hear a quiet voice, a voice that speaks to my soul. And if I begin to pay attention to that voice, I can hear it, I can hear it affirm me. You are my beloved. I can hear the voice, and the voice offers me security and grounding. This is who you are. This is who I created you to be. This is what I'm working in your life. It's a voice that reminds me of who I am and what my gifts are. This is how I knit you together. This is what I have imparted to you. This are, these are some ways in which you can use those gifts. When I'm quiet, I hear this voice, and this voice says, let me remind you who you are. Let me remind you who you're supposed to be. When I'm quiet, I hear that voice. And then I act as though I never heard it. Anybody else with me on that? You hear the voice. You're reminded of the voice. You're reminded of certain things. But then, but then you act as if you've never heard it. The good I want to do, I do not do. 
And there's a number of different ways that that plays out for me. One is I withhold my gifts or my dreams from things that I'm supposed to give myself. So I hear the voice remind me of my gifts and give me even a, a picture of how I might use those gifts. And, and, and then I just don't do it. So right now, I, I've had a dream for a particular project here at CCC, and I've dreamed about it for well over a year, maybe going on for two years. I've thought about it. I've floated the idea to a couple of people. I've talked with others outside of the church about it. Even this, this summer, I was sitting at, at our house with a, with a friend, and we were just talking about stuff, and we were talking about church. They're a pastor as well. We were talking about things, and, and they, they said to me, they didn't name the project, but they essentially described the project and said, you should do that. And I haven't done it yet. How, how many of us don't have that kind of experience? We get a vision for something that excites us and that we feel God is calling us to, but then we don't act on that vision. Maybe we get a sense that we should, maybe it's not some project or some ministry, but it's just a sense like we should give ourselves to more quiet. I should give myself to creating more space and margin in my life, but then don't act on it. Or I feel like I should, God is calling me to focus more on my relationships, but then we don't change anything to create time for those relationships. Or, or, or maybe you realize that your life is dominated by task and obligation and that there's nothing, there's, there's not a, I don't like the word hobby because hobby, I don't know, but there's these activities that rejuvenate us. There's these activities that restore us and bring us rest. And if I were to ask you, like, what makes your heart sing? What's the thing that just brings you joy when you do it? And if you don't know the answer to that, maybe, maybe, maybe discovering what that is is the thing that the voice is calling to you too. But you actually don't follow through with it. Maybe the reason that I don't do any of this, sometimes the reason that I don't do that, that I, I hear the voice but I don't act on the voice is because, because I've committed myself to something that I don't really believe in. Right? I've said yes to things that I probably shouldn't say yes to. And so it's a thing that doesn't really use my gifts. I'm not really passionate about that cause. I, I, it saps my energy. I sometimes walk away from it going, man, I could have spent the two hours of my time better doing something else. But we just, because we've given ourselves to that, we don't have the space needed to act on what we hear the voice say. Or, or maybe, maybe this is, a little, this is a little bit different than me. I tend to be a little outspoken, but maybe you hear the voice talk to you about some injustice or some cause in the world, and you become convinced that it is something that you want to join up with, that you want to give voice and raise awareness about. You commit yourself to that when you hear the voice, I, I am going to be about this cause. But the next time it comes up in conversation, you remain silent. all the ways in which we live this divided, segmented life. Maybe one more way. I think sometimes we can, we can easily fall into this one too. I think one other way that we live this divided life is when we fail to recognize that we actually do have an inner darkness. I think there's a hidden wholeness, yes, absolutely, but I also think there's, there's an inner darkness. John, in his first letter, says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive yourself, or deceive ourselves. 
right? If we claim that there is no inner darkness, there's no dark corner of our life, there's nothing, if we claim that, or at least we deny it by, by refusing to look at it or acknowledge it, then we actually are deceiving ourselves. And so one of the ways in which we live this divided life is we paint everything in rosy pictures. We don't talk about the things that are weighing us down. We don't talk about the places where we stumble and trip over and over and over again. We don't talk about the, the thoughts that we have that are quite dark. We don't, we don't acknowledge that those there. We simply deny the darkness. And in denying the darkness, one of two things happens. Number one is that darkness gains more power over us. Or number two, and this might even be more nefarious, is we begin to project that darkness onto others and we create enemies where enemies did not exist before. All of this are, all of these are examples of the divided life. The good I want to do, I do not do. But the evil I don't want to do, that, man, that's what I find myself doing over and over again. I've given a couple of examples of what this can look like, but Parker Palmer, in his book, A Hidden Wholeness, he lists out a number of things that well, it's like a rubric, right? We can look at these things and say, if these things exist, then we might be living a hidden life, a, a divided life. And so he lists some of these characteristics of the divided life. He says this, one, we refuse to invest ourselves in our work, diminishing its quality and distancing ourselves from those it is meant to serve. So one of the ways in which we can say, okay, ask ourselves a question, am I living the divided life? We can look to this and say, am I investing myself in my work? This doesn't mean necessarily that I love my work. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best thing ever, but am I investing myself in it? Am I willing to commit to it? Or am I distancing myself not only from the work itself, from the people it's meant to serve? And if the answer to that is yes, then then I may be living the divided life. Two, we make our living at jobs that violate our basic values, even when survival does not absolutely demand it. Now notice absolutely demand it. it, it yes, if we're doing a job that violates our basic values, and we leave that job, it may make it tough. It may be hard. It may cause financial constriction. But survival doesn't absolutely demand it, right? There's that distinction there. We can still survive. We can still get by. We can figure that out until we get the new job. I also want to say this about this idea of violate basic values. So often we think about that in terms of morality. Yeah, am I being asked to do something that is immoral? I would think most of us, that's not true. But we might find ourselves in a job that violates our basic values. Say, for example, a job that demands all kinds of time from us. And yet one of our basic values is to be present to our family. Right? And if that's true, we may find ourselves in a divided life where what we value is separate from what we do. The good I want to do, I do not do. Third, we remain in settings or relationships that steadily kill off our spirits. So again, it could be a job. It could be a third space that we go to, right? A, a, an activity that we're a part of that once brought us joy but no longer is bringing us joy. 
We remain in relationships that suck the energy out of us. And that doesn't mean that we get to cut those relationships off or just walk away from them, but it doesn't mean that we may have to have some very difficult conversations with particular individuals about what they can expect from us, what they can't expect from us, drawing boundaries, all of that sort of stuff, so that we're actually bringing our whole selves to that relationship. When we don't do that and we remain quiet in those settings or in those relationships, Again, we're erecting walls separate from, that separate us from what our heart and our soul is feeling. Fourth, we harbor secrets to achieve personal gain at the expense of other people. So we ourselves, we harbor some secret, something, in order to achieve something. Now, we can think about it in personal terms, but I also want to say, I think, and the example I'll give is a modern example, and it's more corporate. Right now, the church, just like the rest of society, is sort of having this huge conversation around abuse. Just this week, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, did a special conference on how to care well for people who have been abused within churches. Because there's this thing that's happening, and you can find articles about it. The Houston Chronicle uh, earlier this year did this huge study on the number of abuse cases that happened within, they were looking at SBC churches, but you can even broaden it out, and it's hundreds of cases. And we know what's going on in the Catholic Church. We've heard about that for years. Like, there's this huge reckoning that is happening. And what we find so often is that the secrets of what's happened in the churches, either by a staff member or a volunteer or some other person, is swept under the rug lest it hurt the image of the institution, the church. And the victim, then, is the one who pays the price for that. And this is a way in which the church as a corporate whole has entered into this idea of a divided life. What we say we are about, truth and honesty and calling out sin and standing up for those who have been oppressed or unjust things have happened, we step back from those. We let some things stay in the darkness. All so that we don't hurt the image. This is the divided life. Six, we hide our beliefs, belief, beliefs from those who disagree with us to avoid conflict, challenge, or cha and or change. So when I believe something, and I'm in the midst of a conversation with you, and you say something that I don't believe, I just go along with it. Yeah, yep, yep, I get that. And we do that all in order to avoid the difficulty that may arise. There's a part of how we live the divided life. Last one. We conceal our true identities for fear of being criticized, shunned, or attacked. So not just we don't say what we believe, but we don't even fully share who we are, what we're about, what our hopes and our dreams are, our fears are, who we believe God has created us to be. When we hear that still, still small voice that speaks to our soul and we don't give voice to that to others about what we've heard from that voice, that is a way in which we live the divided life. Parker Palmer then goes on and he says this, the perceived incongruity of inner and outer lives, the inauthenticity that we sense in others or they in us constantly undermines our morale, our relationship, and our capacity for good work. When we continue to live a divided life, it hurts the work that we're doing, it hurts relationships around us, and it hurts our morale. In other words, bitterness begins to creep in frustration, 
cynicism. Joy becomes harder to find. And we just go through the motions of life. We lack purpose. We lack passion. And we become, as Paul would say, a slave to sin. We're just, we just accept, like, this is the way it is. Nothing's going to change. I wish life would be different, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Now, this whole idea of the divided life is not an ethical problem. And Paul talks in chapter 7 there, he says, hey, even the law doesn't get you to do what you want to do. So common, what happens commonly when we talk about this sort of divided life, when we talk about, about these things that we do uh, to just sort of get by, right? We keep silent lest we be criticized. We keep silent lest that we be shunned. We keep silent lest we wreck the boat. We, we don't take action when action is needed. We let secrets go on. Like the, the reason we do that is because there's some sort of ethical or moral failure and so we need to raise the standard, we need to raise the ethical bar so that people behave differently, right? So that we understand just how bad it is. So for example, you got a teacher who's just phoning it in day in and day out. They're showing up to work, but they're not putting any effort into their lesson plans. They're not really trying to get their students, know their students. They're not really, I mean, they're just going through the motions. They're phoning it in. You'd, you'd approach them, you try to appeal to their moral standards or their ethical goodness that we hope that exists within them and say, you know, this is a disservice to the school who is paying you. It's a disservice to teachers it's, or to students. It's unfair to those students but when they don't get the best of you, right? And we try to then put some ethics or some, some rules in place to raise that teacher's performance in the classroom, we observe that teacher according to different metrics. We try to measure different things and test scores and classroom participation and whether or not they're using the new iPad program or whatever it is, right? We do these different things to try to get them to become a better teacher. But we, what we don't do a whole lot is we don't attend to the inner self. We don't help them pay attention to what's going inside, on inside. We don't ask questions about how what they believe and what they hope for, what their dreams are, what maybe the small voices talking to them about, and how that's different from how they're showing up in the class. We don't have those conversations. And listen, that's just not in teaching. That's in culture in general. In our culture, the inner workings of an individual are secondary. We value objective knowledge, and we value that objective knowledge because gaining objective knowledge about the world allows us to manipulate it so that we can get what we want. Working on our inner selves, attending to these things, stillness and quiet and listening, like there's, there's no capital value to that. We can't even really manipulate it. We ourselves then have to, have to submit to something else. And so we, we, we'd much, we just kind of push that aside and we prefer something much quicker. And we place this high standard then on ethical and moral standards and we raise those up and then we ask people to put those ethical standards on like some sort of uniform in order to conform with how we think they should act. But here's the thing about asking people to put on an ethical standard like a uniform. If they can put it on, they can take it off. Right? The law does not 
cause us to change. The law doesn't cause us to do good things. Raising the moral standards, saying here's the ethical uniform we want you to wear, that doesn't doesn't cause any kind of change. We may get some behavior modification out of that. But we still have a divided life. And and this happens in the church, too. In effort to be a quote-unquote good Christian, whatever that is, we adopt the external ethics and morals without attending to our internal soul. And so we know the good that we ought to do, but we do not do it. And and, and here's what I think is sometimes missed in this passage. Paul's got this one line in there that I think is fabulous. He says this, "In, in our inner being, we delight in God's word. Right, if we can get past all the walls and all the masks that we wear, if we can get down into that spot, that place where we hear that still small voice, we actually delight in it. We delight in the voice of God speaking into our lives. We delight in hearing that we are beloved. We delight. Our hearts race when they hear them. Our soul quickens when we're attentive to that voice. We delight in that, and yet we do not act. John Middleton Murray says this. He was an essayist, theologian, writer. He says, For the good person to realize that it is better to be whole than to be good is to enter on a straight and narrow path compared to which his or her previous rectitude was flowery license. Notice he says, It is better to be whole than to be good. I think that echoes the words of Jesus. Because there's not a whole, I can't find the place where Jesus is encouraging us to be good. Closest I get is when he says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's a difficult translation, and I don't, I'm not even sure it's a good translation. Better to say that Jesus is encouraging us, be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. So then how do we move towards wholeness? This is the question before us. If wholeness is this place where we're no longer living the, un, the, the divided life, but we move towards an undivided life where our interior and our exterior are more aligned, how do we move in that direction? I think there's four things. Number one, we embrace silence, solitude, and stillness. We have to become a people who are hearing the voice. We have to be quiet enough, still enough, sometimes even alone enough to hear the voice that speaks to our soul. There's in the Old Testament story of Moses. Moses has fled Egypt, and he's, out, he's now become a shepherd. And he's out in the wilderness, and he's tending to the sheep. And one day he comes across a bush that is burning, but it is not being consumed. And out of that bush, Moses hears the voice of God. Now, most often when the story is told, at least this is true for me, when I interpret it, interpret it as the miracle that Moses was attentive to was the fact that this bush was burning but not being consumed. But there's another way to look at that story. See, in the Middle East region, in this area that Moses would have been, there was a flower, the dicti- I think the Dictus albus, something like that. It's known as the gas plant, right? So this plant, this bush gives off an oil. It secretes an oil onto its leaves. And when it gets hot enough and the sun is intense enough, that oil will actually spontaneously combust. 
So it burst into flames. But the oil burns off, and the bush remains unharmed. So it's possible that Moses, being a shepherd in a region in which this gas plant grows, had seen this happen a number of times, had seen this plant burst into flames in the hot of the day, and then the bush remaining and the flames going away, but the bush not being consumed. If that's so, if Moses has actually experienced this a number of times, then the miracle is not the bush burning but not being consumed. The miracle is that Moses noticed that bush and paid attention to that bush, went over there and realized that something different was happening, took his shoes off because it was holy ground. Maybe the miracle in our lives, then, is when we find places where we hear the voice speak and we're attentive to it. Maybe the miracle in this day and age is being able to carve out times of silence, solitude, and listening. Is that just a miracle for me if that happens in our lives, where I've got an hour to myself where I can just be quiet? Right? Like, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe the miracle is that we recognize just how important that is and we listen to the voice that speaks. Second, we tell the truth. We tell the truth about the contradictions that exist between our inner and our outer lives. It is far too easy on two fronts to evade what we hear from the voice. Number one, it is too easy to avoid what the voice is affirming in us. The voice didn't really say that. I'm really not God's beloved. That's just a nice idea that I want, but it's not really true because I've done X, Y, or Z. God's not really calling me to this. This is too difficult. I don't have space in my life for this. And we evade what the voice is telling us because it's too difficult. Or what we do is we begin to get a glimpse of the darkness, right? Maybe the voice says, like, this is who you are, and this thing over here, that's not it. That's, that's, that's the evil. And maybe it's not evil, it's just not good, it's not completely you. And we hear that, we get a glimpse of the darkness, but we deny it. Eh, it's not really true, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just deal with this between me and God, I don't have to acknowledge it. And we fail to tell the truth about the contradictions that exist within our lives. We fail to tell, be honest about the good that we want to do that we do not do and the evil that we don't want to do that we do. And as such, we live divided lives. And so, to move away from that, we need to tell the truth. Which leads right into the next one. We need community. We cannot do the work of becoming whole alone. In order to move from an undivided life to a divided life, we need people around us who both help us see the contradictions in our lives and then encourage us to help our inner and our outer lives line up. So one of the exercises that I did this summer was to email a number of people who know me well and ask them some questions. Questions like, what do you perceive as my gifts? What do you see in my life that I've given myself to that I shouldn't have given myself to? What do you see as, you know, the very nice word, growth areas, otherwise known as weaknesses? What do you see as those in my life? And, and I solicited that, not because I'm unaware. I, I am aware of a lot of my strengths and my weaknesses. But there's also a the lot that I'm not aware of. 
There are things that you know about me that I don't know about me. There are ways in which I impact the room positively and negatively that I don't really know about. There are things that I fool myself into thinking I'm good at that I'm not. There are things that I'm doing that I can rationalize away and make good cases as to why I should give my time and energy to them, but others say it and go, no, 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 that's not it. And so I need people who come around me and say, like, this, this is, these are the things that I see. This is what the impact is. This, is. this is what I believe God is doing in your life or is calling you to. I need that outside help. And then I also need people to encourage me. So what was unexpected out of this exercise doing it this summer was the number of people who have followed up with me since and said, hey, what did you learn? Or what are you doing differently? Or how's it going taking what we, the feedback we gave you and implementing it into your life? We need that if we are going to become more whole. And then fourth, Grace. I love what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 8. So he just goes on for these number of verses at the end of chapter 7. The good I want to do, I don't do, but the things I I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And then he says, chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we acknowledge the contradictions that exist in our life, there is grace. As we begin to tear down the walls, there is grace. As we fumble and trip and go back into old patterns, there's grace. It's grace over, under, and through the whole process as we seek to live the undivided life. I believe that this is what Jesus meant when he said whoever loses their life will find it. If you're willing to lose the masks, if you're willing to lose your self-made identity, if you're willing to abandon your failures or abandon your successes and your failures as definers of who you are, you begin to find your life. And it takes work. I just said that this whole thing is covered over in grace, but I'll also say this. It takes an incredible amount of effort to do this. But as Dallas Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Right? Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. So grace means that I don't have to earn my status as beloved. Grace means that I don't have to earn my salvation. Grace means that living the, moving towards a whole life, an undivided life, is not about trying to earn some status within God's kingdom. Grace means that status has already been given to me. The effort then that I have is to live more fully as a beloved, as a son. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. And so we put effort into this. We put effort into creating space to hear the still, small voice. We put effort into telling the truth about the contradictions that exist in our lives. We put effort into inviting people into that process. We put effort into understanding grace. And as we do, as we live as more whole people, we experience greater peace, greater purpose, greater passion, and greater joy.
hearing the voice that speaks to our soul and heeding that voice will lead you to your life. Your whole life. (laughs) Your whole abundant life. As it should be. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the life that you have given us in Christ. That we do not have to earn anything, but that we have been called your beloved by you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as a people who have submitted ourselves to the lordship of Christ and to his example and way of life that he calls us into, we are a people who seek to live undivided. Undivided in our worship of you, undivided in our submission to your kingdom and its its ways. Undivided. This is what we long for. And so, Lord, I pray that as we take these steps to find the hidden wholeness within us, that your Holy Spirit would guide us, would lead us, and would remind us who we are. May we all hear that small voice. May our souls leap when they hear. And may we begin to live and act based upon what we've heard. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.